1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
2: And I'm Aura Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: A handful of chemical elements underpin the electronics that run the world. And until now, only a handful of countries did all the mining and the processing of them. But as China shows its willingness to pinch off supplies, its neighbors are building their own capabilities.
2: Chinese government is getting creative with its propaganda. It's opted for a slightly different medium to educate young people about food security, a reality TV show. When Donald Trump took office in 2017, the first weeks of his administration were marked by chaos, sackings, and a shortage of candidates to fill vital roles.
0: Breaking news tonight, NBC News has confirmed Donald Trump's national security Advisor, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, has resigned. The news comes... Four
3: days- White House communications director, Anthony Scaramucci, has, who was only appointed 10 days ago by President Trump, we believe has been fired. This is according to media in the United States.
2: In the months that followed, many of his grand policies were resisted and reined in by officials. Now, with campaigning for the 2024 presidential election in full swing, Mr Trump's main rival, Ron DeSantis, is struggling to make much headway, and many people are realising that a second Trump term in office is possible. This includes conservative policymakers and opinion shapers, and they're determined that If their man wins the White House again, this time, he'll be ready.
4: Behind the scenes, ahead of the Republican primary, there are two types of things going on in Donald Trump world.
2: John Priddo is The Economist's U.S. editor and host of Checks and Balance, our podcast on American
4: politics. One is plans for the campaign. And the striking thing there is it's much more professionalised than it was before, certainly in 2016. The other thing is the policy plans for what a Donald Trump second term would actually mean for America.
2: And who's working on these policy plans?
4: Well, the interesting thing here to me is that compared with 2016, there are some new groups and they are really well organized and going about planning for government in a fairly methodical way. So there are some new think tanks. There's one called the America First Policy Institute which was set up when Donald Trump lost office in 2020. There are about eight former Trump cabinet members involved in that think tank and 20 or so people who worked in Donald Trump's White House. And then the other striking thing is that Trumpism, this sort of America First approach has taken over some of the bigger think tanks in Washington, including the Heritage Foundation, which is a big conservative think tank that was really important in the Reagan revolution back in the 80s. And is a big sort of institution in professional American conservatism. And they're busily crafting policy plans for Donald Trump's second term. And there are some others as well. So what's different with 2016 is it's just much more organized on a much bigger scale and much more methodical.
2: Okay, give me a sense of the scale of the task at hand here. I mean, it sounds like these groups have quite a big job ahead of them.
4: Yeah, they do. Any new administration that comes in has about 3,000, 4,000 political appointees. About 1,000 of those need to be confirmed by Congress, but a lot of them don't. And when the Trump team came in in January 2017, they didn't have anything like that number of people. Most People didn't expect Donald Trump would win. And a lot of Republicans at the time, frankly, held views that were diametrically opposed to his. So they had a staffing problem. This time around, those think tanks are trying to make sure that there are, you know, three, four thousand people who are fully signed up to a Donald Trump America first agenda, who are ready to go and get control of the different federal agencies and bureaucracies on day one and start carrying out their plans.
2: And how are they going about building these plans? What exactly are they trying to do?
4: There is two bits to that. One bit is the the method and then the second bit is what they actually hope to do with power. So just on the method, one of the conclusions that people who served in Donald Trump's White House drew was that you can't get anything done without the support of the bureaucracy. And they thought, and actually quite a lot of Donald Trump's opponents would agree with them on this, that they were thwarted by permanent civil servants from doing exactly what they wanted to do. So the first thing they want to do is change that. And there are a few different ways they plan to do so. One is to what they call deconstruct the administrative state, which is the phrase that denotes really they'd like to shrink all the... You know, alphabet agencies that form the federal government. And the other is they want to make all civil servants fireable at will. So at the moment, it's quite hard to get sacked if you are a civil servant in the federal government. They want to make that very easy so that the political appointees who would come in as part of the next Trump administration can just clear out anybody who's not carrying out their orders.
2: Okay, so if Trump is re-elected if this administration that these groups are working on actually does make it into these relevant offices. What about policy?
4: So they're planning some really big policy changes. Some of them are things that you would expect, like continuing the border wall. They are very worried about gender self-ID in America and they want to change laws and change the federal government's guidelines on that. They're enthusiastic about Second Amendment rights, so gun rights in America, trying to make it easier for Americans to carry the guns that they want to carry wherever they want to carry them. But there were three areas which I think are particularly consequential. One is management of the economy. The second one is the environment and what a second Trump term would mean for carbon dioxide emissions in America and environmental policy. And the third one is on foreign policy where there's some really big differences
2: okay, we've got a war raging in Ukraine, tensions with China are high, and you're saying that there are some big differences in foreign policy coming, well, potentially coming. What do those look like?
4: On foreign policy, I'd say the biggest divide in the America First movement at the moment is over Ukraine. So there are still some people in the America First movement, some more old-style Republicans who think that it's important to stand up to Russia and support Ukraine. But really, that's not where most of the energy is. And one of the things I was struck by was how many people just said to me very flat out that America's national interest isn't served by supporting Ukraine. America should just get out of Ukraine, you know, leave it to the Europeans to sort out. America needs to focus on China instead. So I think one conclusion from that is if you are Vladimir Zelensky or if you're one of Ukraine's European allies, you should take very seriously – if you weren't already, the prospect that come January 2025, you know, it's really possible that Ukraine won't have America's support.
2: And what about China?
4: On China, I think there's a bit more continuity with the Biden administration. I mean, the Biden administration has talked very tough on China, but the criticism from the kind of America first crowd is that they haven't gone far enough. So they would advocate things like an immediate ban on TikTok. When it comes to doing business with China, there would be even more energy than there already is behind, you know, trying to prevent, dissuade, you know, kind of cajole American companies not to invest in China, particularly in what are seen as kind of key sectors of the economy for national security. But frankly, that's a sort of definition that can be stretched really far to cover a lot of stuff. There's a big question about what a Trump administration would do. Were China to invade Taiwan, I think that's a really hard one to answer at the moment. And Donald Trump's instincts, I think, are not, in fact, super hawkish on that. Those of his advisors or would-be advisors are, are much more hawkish.
2: And John, how much is Trump himself involved in all this planning?
4: I wouldn't say he's involved so much as that he's aware of it. So he is not, to put it mildly, a sort of policy detail guy. But that actually creates quite a big opportunity for some of these policy entrepreneurs who are busily filling out these plans for his second term. And the ones I talk to who are running these operations tell me that, yeah, he is aware of what's going on and broadly supportive and and excited about the plans.
2: Okay, this sounds like a pretty scary prospect. John, what do you make of all of this?
4: I think you're right about that. I think the people who looked at the Trump administration and thought, wow, this is a collection of people with really radical ideas, but they're not very good at government. And there are a lot of people in that administration, frankly, who, well, they're not hostile to the president, they don't think his ideas are great either, and they're going to spend their time trying to thwart him or trying to hide documents so that he doesn't sign them. There was a lot of that in the first term, we know from reporting at the time and also all the books that have come out since. Were Donald Trump to win again, I think it would be very, very different. I think you would have this you know, pretty well-oiled machine ready and enthusiastic about carrying out his plans, which was not the case the first time around. Now, of course, there's a limit to how organized any White House could be with Donald Trump at its core. But I think this would be a very, very different proposition to first time around.
2: John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, sorry. And you'll be able to hear more from John and our colleagues about this topic on next week's edition of Checks and Balance. Download it wherever podcasts fight it out for your vote.
1: On the periodic table, nestled between zinc and arsenic, you'll find gallium and germanium, two elements crucial for making computer chips and fiber optics and solar panels. All the elements in whatever gizmo you're listening to this on, from cobalt to lithium to the rare earths, have to come out of the earth in places where they're abundant. In many cases, that means China. For a long time, China's dominance in digging up and processing these critical minerals didn't much trouble the rest of the world. Prices were low and supplies stable. But by now, geological reserves of this stuff are geopolitical reserves, and China is increasingly willing to make supplies less stable. Last week, the country put export bans on gallium and germanium, sending shivers through the metals markets and making nearby countries consider where else they might get their raw materials.
3: It's rare in the Asia-Pacific region for a country now not to have either already an agreed critical mineral strategy or not to be feeling towards one.
1: Dominic Ziegler is The Economist's Singapore Bureau Chief.
3: And in the process of thinking more strategically about critical minerals, a new geopolitics is being defined in the region, one that's driven by resources. And resource-rich countries in particular, including Australia and Indonesia, are angling to profit from what seems sure to be a coming minerals bonanza. Australia in particular, in fact, is looking to step up to the plate.
1: In what way? What does it look like to address this
3: problem head on? Well, the first step is to define the problem, and Australia's resources minister, Madeline King, calls China's dominance a strategic challenge. So last month, her government unveiled a critical mineral strategy to counter China's near monopoly. And Australia, in fact, is well-positioned to do something about it, because it's rich in critical minerals and rare earths. It's the biggest producer of lithium, it's the third biggest producer of cobalt, and the fourth biggest of rare earths. The problem is that it's a processing minnow. Nearly all of the lithium ore it digs out, particularly in Western Australia, goes to China for further refining. But there are plans to change that, and the new strategy's aim is to become, by 2030, a globally significant producer of processed critical minerals. So
1: you seem to be drawing a distinction there between uh, producing, digging it out of the ground, and and processing, where China seems to be in the lead. Becoming a, a processing leader can't be cheap.
3: It's not cheap. And the issue is that China has spent the best part of three decades getting to its dominant position today. And it's done that with huge state backing in terms of subsidies and investment, It's done that using cheap labour and some pretty lax environmental standards. And processing is far from easy. In fact, rare earths are not that rare, but they are spread very thinly. So, you know, only really small amounts of critical minerals can be extracted from huge quantities of ore. Then there are dozens of metallurgical stages required for the processing. And it's environmentally damaging, at least potentially, if care isn't taken. And if care is, it's very expensive. So, you know, anyone else, including Australia, is starting much nearer from scratch. It's not entirely sure that the funds are there, but in Australia's case, it's committing 500 million Australian dollars, that's about 350 million US dollars, to help with projects that fall under the new strategy. The last government set up a 2 billion Australian dollar fund for early stage projects, helping get critical minerals off the ground. Most of that money is going to a rare earth's refinery. And there are also alliances, formal and informal, being forged. In April, a delegation of Australian producers went to Tokyo. And what Australian policymakers really want, and I think this will be key, is for Japanese investment and long-term buying contracts to help get Australia's critical minerals industry off the ground.
1: And you mentioned other countries in the region that are also kind of waking up
3: and doing something here. Who else? Yeah, well, one example is South Korea. I mean, South Korea, of course, has huge ambitions in terms of producing electric vehicles and batteries. And it feels more keenly than almost any other country that it's in between the great strategic rivalry between China and the United States. And so it's trying to take action that will give it more autonomy in critical minerals. And part of that involves striking partnerships with a number of countries, including Kazakhstan, Indonesia, yes, Australia, and also the EU. And it hopes, through recycling, amongst other things, to decrease its import dependency on China from 80% to 50% by 2030. Taiwan, India, in fact, its hard to think of a country which uh, isn't thinking about critical minerals.
1: I suppose one question is why this thinking is only going on now. The the transition, for example, to electric vehicles has been on the horizon for really quite some time. What's taken so long for these countries to really take action?
3: Yeah, well, one of the reasons it's taken so long is that actually China has, for the most part, not used its dominance to push up prices. In fact, on the contrary, if it sees any rivals, any potential competitors, it's flooded the market for rare earths or critical minerals, keeping prices low. So customers by and large, have been happy. But Japan learnt well over a decade ago of the risks of reliance on China. It was involved in a standoff with China over some disputed little islands. And in retaliation, China held back supplies of rare earth to Japan. That was a shock to the country, and it certainly goaded Japan into seeking alternative supplies. As geopolitical rivalry has sharpened, and as China's own power has sharpened. Other countries have started to appreciate the risks of relying on a monopoly supplier. So, you know, all in all, the attempt here is to try to build in resilience, to try to build in alternative supply chains, and not to depend so much on China.
1: In which case, I guess that the question is, how, how plausible is that? It's not as if every country can build up an entire supply chain for itself and its friends,
3: right? Absolutely right. It won't be clear for some time how plausible this strategy will be. One of the things that the strategy relies on is huge amounts of government support and investment in different countries. Another crucial factor will be countries working together. And this kind of new industrial strategy playing out across numbers of countries is really untested and it's far from guaranteed to succeed. And even if it does, that'll be years down the road. And so until then, the world will be relying very much upon China for supplies of these minerals. And I think that even some dominant American companies and even American policymakers, perhaps more in private than in public, will admit that it'll be hard to break China's hold. The risks that China poses are there. Last year, for instance, China threatened to withhold critical minerals from two American defence contractors, huge contractors, Lockheed Martin and Raytheon Technologies, in protest over America's arms sale to Taiwan. But recently, even the boss of Raytheon, which is the world's biggest maker of guided missiles, said we can de-risk, but we can't decouple. That hints at the scale of the challenge.
1: Dominic, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thanks, Jason.
2: There's something of a formula to a successful reality TV show. Take a group of eager young people, put them in a situation they're not used to, sit back and watch them fight it out. It's a formula that's working well on one show in China, one that is about much more than just entertainment.
5: So this show, Become a Farmer, has got 10 young actors and musicians from cities across China.
2: Rosie Bloor writes about China for The Economist.
5: And they've all been sent to the countryside in Zhejiang province in the east of China, and they have to live in this abandoned warehouse and try their luck at farming. And you can see them arrive. It's kind of like any reality TV show. They arrive, they've got giant suitcases. You know, someone talks about the inhuman living conditions. They're all aghast at the outdoor toilet, the mud, the whole thing. And what's behind this show? So it's a reality TV show, so you see a lot of the things you would see in any reality TV show, even things like them communing with chickens and cooing over sheep and stuff. There's a lot of like, ooh, this is so cool, it's so different from our normal world. And. So they're dropped into this world where they know nothing about it they're struggling they're supposed to be making this farm profitable and you know it's quite funny we watch them being out of their depth they're all very stylish and then they've got this kind of mud all over them all all that kind of thing they're using agricultural equipment for the first time (laughs) that's a typical clip you've got a grizzled farmer looking on quite skeptically as these kids struggle then they get tired and then they learn a new appreciation for farming you know you even hear them saying things like i'm gonna listen to you next time or i've got the courage to learn so this is china it's more than just entertainment it's also propaganda
2: Rosie, I'm struggling to see how a show about farming and people communing with chickens is propaganda. Tell me more.
5: So it's interesting. In most reality TV shows, the point is the drama between the contestants. You're trying to eliminate people. There's competition. Who's going to get the girl? Whatever. It's all about conflict between the different contestants. This one is all about working together. And the reason is because the point of the show, it's all about food security. It's all about farming. It's all about being together. So the first show is the most obvious. Obvious documentary light Where it begins with this phrase Of every grain is hard to come by
1: 每一粒米,每一颗粮都来之不易 我们希望每一位观众,每一个年轻人 都能充分认识到粮食安全的重要性
5: So here we've got the producers saying that they want viewers to know where hand-grown food comes from. They want people to understand the true meaning of food. And what this does is it chimes with the government's priorities, particularly under Xi Jinping. So China used to produce all of the food that the Chinese population consumed. Now it imports a lot and it's worried about that. It's relying on imports. And so it wants people to understand that actually they should be producing as much as they can.
2: And why is this such a priority for Xi Jinping? Why does he care so much about the countryside?
5: So it's partly about that national security angle. And there's been a real emphasis in the last few years about Chinese rice bowls being filled with locally grown crops and not wasting food on your plate, that kind of thing. The other thing is that the government has been encouraging people to go back to the countryside or to join the so-called New Farmer movement, which is about getting young graduates young city folk, basically, move to rural areas and find new ways of farming, modernise things. And it's also a way to deal with a growing unemployment problem in the cities where you've got something like 20% of 16 to 24-year-olds in cities unemployed. So go and get new high-tech jobs in the rural areas.
2: And presumably there's a personal aspect for she as well. I mean, I know from listening to our long-form podcast, The Prince, that he had a very um shaping experience in the countryside, let's say.
5: Absolutely. So Xi Jinping was one of the sent down youth in the Cultural Revolution. So in the 1960s he was sent to live in rural Shanxi. He lived in a cave. He suffered and he's spoken about this at length. There was an interview in 2004 when he was head of Zhejiang province that he talked about all of these things. <laughs> So there he's talking about how he was so bitten by fleas that his skin would come up in large red welts and these would fester. And then after three years, his skin finally toughened. And as he put it, he became like an ox. His skin became like an ox. And that same interview he mentioned that meat was so rare that when him and another sent down youth found some, they actually ate it raw. They were so hungry. So the way he sees it is his time in the countryside forged his character. He's got this expression about the knife being sharpened on the stone. And he's said recently that he thinks the Chinese youth are basically a bit weak. They could do with a bit of honing. So go down to the countryside and get tough, get real. Rosie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much.
2: The Economist's eight-part documentary, The Prince, about the life of Xi Jinping, was rated one of last year's top podcasts by The New Yorker, New York Magazine, and The Times. Download it wherever you find this podcast.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at And
2: if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you're really missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link, as always, is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
4: data is the lifeblood of business and society. Want to get better with it? Register now for Economist Education's new two-week course, Data Storytelling and Visualisation, starting on July 31st. Designed by The Economist journalists, you'll learn how to create compelling infographics, reveal hidden insights, and to persuade others. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 15% off with the code DATA. So sign up now. at economist.com slash datacourse.